0: I wanted so badly to erase my origin story to have not been known as the funny fat guy that when people would approach me and be like, wow, you really inspired me, I I would almost like shy away from it. But as soon as I lost the weight, I didn't want the compliments anymore. I just wanted everyone to forget.
1: Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley Podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Valley Podcast. Today, I have a really special guest. You probably have seen him on television or followed him on social media because this man has got 12.9 million followers on Instagram, 7.5 million followers on TikTok, 2.6 million people follow him on Twitter. And the man I'm talking about is actor Josh Peck. And today, we're going to be talking about his new book happy people are annoying. So firstly, if you um, haven't heard of Josh, let me give you a quick introduction to who this, this wonderful guest is. So Josh established himself as one of Hollywood's rising talents, making a seamless transition from being a child actor to a leading man. He's best known for his role on the Nickelodeon phenomenon, Drake and Josh. And you've probably also seen him on many feature films and and shows he's guest-started, like The Big Bang Theory or The Mindy Project. Now, you can also catch him in Disney Plus's Turner and Hooch series, which is a continuation of that, that really incredible 1989 Tom Hanks film, and the highly anticipated Hulu series, How I Met Your Father. So I'm so excited to have Josh here, especially because we're going to be talking about a topic, happiness, uh, which is a big topic on Valley. If you're a body member, you probably read the news. We just signed Tal Ben-Shahar of Harvard University to come on our platform to teach the theory, the art, and the science of happiness. So happiness is a hot topic in our community, but it's also something that's so elusive for so many people. Today, with Josh, we're going to be exploring this topic. Josh's new book is called "Happy People Are Annoying," and you can get the book on Amazon. Josh. Welcome to Mind Valley.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here.
1: So Josh firstly, let's let's talk about um the book and what made you decide to release it. As I'm as I'm doing this interview, your book is the number one new release on Amazon in self-help for eating disorders and body image issues, right? That that's a that that's a really interesting niche. But tell us about the book. What made you decide to write it and what is the book about?
0: The book uh It's basically about sort of what I believed happiness was throughout my life, that it was sort of this thing that was uh, relegated to people who were naturally born attractive and good at sports and had generational wealth and basically like received some secret golden ticket into this world of happiness that I just did not receive. And it didn't seem fair. And I didn't quite know how to navigate life on life's terms. Um... It just seemed everyone could adhere to this social contract and be good employees and be good spouses and be good friends. And I was just sort of lost and only throughout my life and going through these challenges, these trials, these things that I uniquely had to walk through that in the moment I felt, why me? Why do I have to? It seems as though everyone else is sort of just gliding through life without much, um, without much objection. It was only through walking through those things that I was able to find a little bit of that joy I was seeking and redefine what happiness meant for me.
1: Why are happy people annoying?
0: Well, it's just because it's natural. Anyone who's naturally good at anything is annoying. <laughs> like if you don't have to work for it, oh my gosh, there's so many people that I, I throughout my life. I mean, people who don't obsessively scroll Instagram, people call you back on time. People who have the right amount of items in the twelve item or less line at the shopping uh, market, like it's just so. I mean, how dare they? But the the truth is, is that uh, I'm, you know, there are times in which I am one of those annoying people. Today, the goal is annoying. That's going to be my next book. The goal is annoying. (laughs) So,
1: so I know in the book you reflect a lot on your late teens and your early twenties. You were raised by a single mom, um, and you and you know you you grew up. Under the spotlight. And that can be invigorating. It can also be cruel. Tell us about that experience of your life and how you navigated that.
0: Well, I think you're right. You know, both things can be true at the same time. Like growing up in the public eye, getting to be on, you know, doing the show for Nickelodeon when I was a teenager during truly formative years was an incredibly special, unique, lucky thing that I got to do. And I dreamed of that. I, I talked about it at eight years old, you know. I would watch tv obsessively i was an only child single mom she was busy working so tv would keep me company at night you know i'd leave it on at night so that the room never got dark uh it was like a babysitter a friend my my best friends growing up were ace ventura and billy madison and you know the fresh prince of bel air these these were my peers and so getting to do something like you know Drake and Josh, I mean, that kind of comedy for anyone who's around my age, uh late 20s, early 30s, those shows on Nickelodeon growing up, Keenan and Cal and all of that I mean, and the Amanda Show was like this was like as if you were in the Godfather, right? I mean it was the wow. highest calling. And yet being so lucky to do this thing and having this rare sort of opportunity, I was incredibly uncomfortable in my own skin, and I was introducing myself to the world in a body that I wasn't quite comfortable in. And that um, that weighed heavy on me at times, like quite literally. And so I was navigating both sides of the coin, which was, I didn't know how, how lucky I was. And yet I knew that my awkward teenage years, instead of being able to sort of burn my yearbooks and swear my family to secrecy, we're now enshrined in reruns.
1: In the book, you talk about how you filled holes in your self-worth with copious amounts of food, television, drugs, and, and all the other trappings of young stardom. How did that start? What what triggered that? And how did you come out of that?
0: I don't know if it was necessarily a trigger. I just I was always kind of a chubby kid. And food, you know, I come from a family of bigger people. And food was sort of a mainstay. It was the focus. Uh, I always say, you know, growing up, it was like, Oh you're going to go to a baseball game great we'll get a hot dog movies popcorn we're going to stay in we'll order chinese we're going to go out we'll get a slice you know holiday dinners and food was was a celebration it was also used when things weren't working out and like well at least we can eat um food was to be no big deal just be able to eat you know for people like me when you hear certain phrases like eat mindfully or you know it's like that's a great idea, but, but I, I have, um, I have a glitch in my brain when it comes to eating. It's not intuitive, intuitive eating, you know, like it's a wonder, it sounds wonderful. It's a wonderful goal. If it works for you, that's awesome. But my intuition tells me more is better. That one is too many and a thousand's never enough. And so I, um, and so as a young kid, I just sort of did the thing that most kids do, which is I ate junk food. I just did it a little bit more. And then at around 13, 13 to 17, I put on about 80 pounds um, and got quite heavy because I was now I was walking to school by myself. And then I, there was a snack table, a drink and Josh <laughs> um, and God bless a good TV or movie set. You know, there's usually unlimited food. And, it, and I think that coupled with the stress of being so public, I really sort of uh, went to town.
1: Then you reversed that and you did something pretty incredible. You lost £100 mm. a hundred pounds as a teenager while you were on Drake and Josh. What caused you to flip that switch?
0: I just knew I had seen that food was like this menacing force to the pecs that my grandfather passed away at 50, just, you know, dropped out of a heart attack. And this was the 60s. So, you know, there wasn't exactly perhaps a lot of thought of heart health. Um, But I I think it's safe to say that probably his lifestyle influenced his sort of uh, untimely demise. And then, you know, my mom had 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 her own challenges with it. And so for me, it was like, if I don't take care of this, I'm going to perpetuate this cycle and I also was 17 and wanted to like, you know, kiss a girl and, you know, be, be a teenager yeah. and, and, and granted, I'm not, I don't, I'm not making some sweeping judgment. There were plenty of kids at my age who were bigger or just not of the typical, you know, body shape and size who were living a fully experienced teenage life. I just was holding myself back because I was so insecure. So I felt like if I didn't do it at 17, I would then lose my college years, and then if I lost my college years, then I might lose my twenties. Like Mm -hmm. I just knew I would always have this governor, and if I didn't inevitably do this thing first, that I couldn't start doing all the work that would be ahead of me.
1: When you went through that incredible transformation, what was the the hardest part about that? Because so many people want to do that, right? But there's a resistance. It's not easy. What was the hardest part that you had to overcome? That if you think if other people could do, they could pull off a massive amount of weight loss like that.
0: Push-ups were the hardest. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, You know, unfortunately, in my experience, pain is a great motivator. And you never learn anything good or you never learn anything on a good day. So I had to, um, or, you know, excuse my language, kick my own ass, like, I had to get to a place at 17 where I was so thoroughly sick and tired of being sick and tired and, and over it and frustrated and, and at times hopeless, because it was only from that place that I was willing to try it a different way, that I was willing to sort of give up any preconceived notions of how things should be or why I deserve different and just say, well, I'm here now. And the only thing I can do is take one baby step out of this mess. And that's what it is, right? Because for years I tried, you know, I would, you know, start this this intense diet on a Monday and and eat no white flour and no sugar and, you know, lose 15 pounds in three days and be like, oh my God, this is it. And then only to sort of fall on my face the next day and put it all back on. But this time I said, I'm just going to have to try to move a little more and eat a little less and if there's a day where i eat something that's not on the diet well i'll live to bite another day but this is going to have to be in millimeters cuz when i try to like take huge leaps I fall every time.
1: How long did it take you for that, that transformation?
0: Two years, about two years to lose 120 pounds. The truth is, you know, I, I, you can see it because like in the fourth season of Drake and Josh, I'm, you know, 120 pounds lighter. And sometimes they would air one of those episodes right, you know, before a, an episode from season one. And so I think, you know, people were worried that uh, maybe I had like a parasite or something. <laughs>
1: but it's an amazing, it's an amazing transformation. So kudos to you. And did you find that there were teenagers or young people who watched that show who were inspired by what they saw, what they saw you accomplish?
0: Yeah. And you know what? I'm, I'm not proud of this, but I've never, um I, I've never said this sort of, I say it in the book, but I've never said it honestly. Like I wanted so badly at that age, which this might not be, um, um, a feeling that's specific to me. I think you'd find a lot of teenagers perhaps that felt this way. I wanted so badly to erase my origin story, like to have not been known as the funny fat guy that when people would approach me and be like, wow, you really inspired me. I I would almost like shy away from it. Cause I was like, I, I don't even, even though that's a nice thing. Like I remember that while I was losing the weight and people would mention like, You know, wow, you look great. I I was eating it up. It felt so good, you know, because I'd spent so much of my life with people saying, we're worried about you or you got to do something about this. But as soon as I lost the weight, I didn't want the compliments anymore. I just wanted everyone to forget. And it was only, you know, through walking through this path, loving that kid, that overweight kid who had to be strong in ways that I don't have to be anymore. And that he just didn't have the tools that I have today as a 35 year old man, like that now I'm it's so honored to know that, that some people, you know, might have been inspired by what I was able to do and gain a little maybe strength or perspective from that. It's like, that's better than, than, you know, that's better than an Academy Award. Well, it's close. An Academy Award would be better. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> that's better than any award when you can actually impact someone's life.
1: That's amazing. I mean, you've, you've pulled up a couple of really incredible things, right? The, the health transformation is one. But there's something else that really intrigues me about you. And that is how you built such a massive following 30 million fans across all platforms. You went from actor to YouTuber to Vine to Instagram to TikTok, back to full-time actor. Let's talk about that for a moment. What, what is causing so many people to seek you out, to want to follow you?
0: Oh boy, I, that's a great question. I think I just learned how to hack the algorithm. No, I. Uh, it, it's a hard thing to answer. What What I'll say is, I think one thing that's been a positive about me is that I'm not, I don't have an ego about the delivery method of creation. I don't look at social media even in 2013 where when there was less data to support mm-hmm. that it would be what it is today, where you know the biggest stars in the world embrace it, the rock, Kevin Hart. I mean, these people have YouTube channels, Will Smith. But then there was sort of a bigger divide between traditional and, and digital star. But I just felt like I had spent so much of my career at the mercy of the gatekeepers, where I had to please so many people to eventually get the job. And then I would do my part of the job, but I really had no say or input on the final product. And hopefully it was great. Sometimes it was. A lot of times it wasn't. I've done plenty of stinkers and it's it's frustrating. And so this idea of being able to go straight to my audience I mean, that's why I think early on with Vine, which for anyone who doesn't remember, Vine was like the original TikTok. It's now RIP, but miss you every day, Vine. Um, like this was they were like, Oh, this isn't YouTube. Like, if you have a phone and you have an account, you have all the editing and, and video power to make this thing and you can upload it like this. You don't know you don't need to know how to edit, you don't need to have a production team you just need to have a good idea so i remember vine launches in 2013 my my wife and i who was my girlfriend at the time were we're just loving it we're we're just fans and one day she says why don't you make a why don't you make a video and i put one up and it gets it gets some views and then i do another one and suddenly i'm starting to get a, a nice little following and I remember I got really lucky. This buddy of mine, Rami Perlman, was working in social media in early days and he was like an apostle of mine. Cause I started to get calls from my agent and manager who were like, Hey, we've been working so hard to like try to make you maybe not just the goofy guy from the kids' show. Does this hurt us? Like you're being kind of a weirdo in your car, you know, doing like, you know, just doing these odd characters. Does this hurt us? And my buddy said, listen, don't let anyone tell you what this is because I work in social media and I don't know what it is. But I'll tell you this, having thousands of people that will consume your content that you can go to directly, that they can tell you what they like, what they don't like and everything in between, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. So do this, actually do it every day. And I started to make a Vine every day. And that's translated to the following that I have today.
1: That, that That's an amazing story of Vine every single day. And that's how you got 13 million fans on Instagram. So for, for those of you who aren't aware, Vine was a service that allowed people to post a 30-second video.
0: And no, then six seconds.
1: Six, a six-second video. And yeah. then a Facebook acquired Instagram uh, from Kevin Systrom and Facebook. Uh, Facebook's, you know, the way Mark Zuckerberg works is he wants to kill every other social media platform. So he copies what other people do. So Instagram copied some of the features of Vine and they allowed video posting. And because of Facebook's massive audience, they were able to crush Vine, very similar to what they um, what they are trying to do with Snapchat.
0: And yet somehow TikTok was able to sort of pick up where Vine had left off. And I think inevitably Vine just you know, the, the great superpower of any sort of startup is that ability in which to pivot and, and be light. And they, unfortunately, like we, as the, the sort of big people on the app at the time, you know, it was me and a couple, you know, a few dozen other creators, we were like their R and D team happy to give them all this free feedback because here they were giving us this platform. Like it was this really sort of symbiotic relationship. And yet every time we said, allow us to make the videos longer, allow us to edit within the app, allow us to do this or, you know, turn off certain comments or what have you. Unfortunately, it seemed as though they weren't able to pivot in the right ways quick enough. And then when TikTok came on the scene, we were like, oh, it's like they took all our feedback and just did it. And, And maybe they just had time on their side.
1: Yeah, I've had interactions with, uh, with ByteDance, the company that, that builds TikTok, and they are genius. It's amazing what these, um, they're they a Chinese company. It's amazing how rapidly they are innovating and how impressive their technology stack is.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, their, um, you know, their algorithm is, is pretty special. I just love going on other people's TikToks. I'm like, oh, this is what yeah. you're into. Like, your For You page will tell you more about you than, than your own mother.
1: It's incredible what what the AI can do in terms of determining who you are, your habits, uh, what you're gonna like, who you're gonna vote for, what issues um, interest you. The whole world of social media is fascinating. I'm investing. Yeah. I'm, I'm investing in a social in a in a interesting community platform right now. So this is just something I have so much passion about.
0: There's just going to be so many different opportunities in which to continue to sort of level up the social media landscape, because it's just, you know, it, it, it's going to become the primary way we communicate, I think.
1: Possibly. I, I'm, I'm betting on something else. I'm, I'm betting that yeah. the future of social networks is going to go off the app and it's going to go to real world connections. So I'm investing in, in companies right now. I've, I've evolved from being the founder of Mindvalley to now being an investor in community tech. And I'm investing wow. and I'm interested in companies that are bringing people together in the real world. Because that's true human connection, right? Social media is really a way of democratizing entertainment, but it's not true human connection. So I I'm think I think there's going to be a shift.
0: That's why but, I don't. That's why I'm terrified of the metaverse. I'm like, I'm not interested. <laughs> I feel like I want to go camping in, in an actual forest. Well, I'm not sure I want to go camping, but you know what I mean, uh, like. I, you know, maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I should be, you know, buying real estate in the metaverse somewhere, you know, lakeside.
1: No, no. People people are pe- people are misunderstanding what the metaverse is going to be. The metaverse is not going to be um, real estate. It's, the biggest part of the metaverse is not going to be real estate in the cloud. The biggest part of the metaverse is going to be metaverse objects in our space, in short, augmented reality. In 2017, I was sitting down at a conference in Silicon Valley with some of the leading minds in AR and VR. And Peter Diamandis was hosting. He's a famous futurist. And he pulled six men on screen or uh, on stage. They were all experts in AI, VR, uh, um, and all of these different technologies. And he says, When in regular glasses, when will we have the ability to see augmented reality? And all of them said, In normal glasses, no different from what I'm holding up right now, we'll get there between 2025 and 2029. That was wow. the range from all of these experts. Right, and um, and so most of us will be wearing fashionable glasses. So these are blue light blocking glasses. Tom Ford. They, you know, they're they're kind of cool. I, I like wearing them around. But in something as light as this, you'll be able to see augmented reality. And this is what's going to happen. It's not going to be the utility. Isn't going to be computer games. The utility is going to be this. So let's say you, Josh, when you went through that that act of losing hundred pounds, there were certain foods that you liked. There were certain. Um, uh, maybe some healthy shakes, or perhaps there was a grocery list, or there was a health food store in your neighborhood, you could go there, go to that store, go to that supermarket, and right in the air, buy this, eat this, Josh's recipe. This is, this is Josh's shake. And the people who follow you, when they walk into that real world, they see your annotation. They see stickies from you, your annotation, your markings in that physical space. And so what's happening is that they are, in a way, subscribed to your brain and your intellect within the context of that space. So that's where I believe the future of social media is going to be, not, not us being hooked in computer games. That, is, that scares me. That is going to be so unhealthy for the human race, right?
0: Yeah, I'm not even good at regular video games, and I'm not it. My friends always want to play Call of Duty, and I'm like, I'm not the one to be on your yeah. team. I'm going I'm, I'm to get murked really quick.
1: Right. But but that said, let's talk about social media because a lot of people are interested in that. I mean, who wouldn't want more followers on Instagram, right? It's great brand building. And many people who are part of Mind Valley are CEOs, are company founders, and it is an audience and it is something that you should leverage. Any company I invest in, I ensure the CEO gets an Instagram. In fact, I just invested in the company and I made the CEO open an Instagram account that very day. Wow. Uh, because it's it's important, right? But what would be your tips to, to, to get people interested in following you and listening to your point of view and hearing your ideas on a platform like Instagram?
0: I would say, you know, it, it sounds reductive or, or overly simple, simple, but honesty, honesty is rewarded. Vulnerability is rewarded in a way that we've never seen before because everyone's posting this curated life to Instagram of what they think people want to see, of what they want to present. You know, I, I always say we always see the picture of the people at the club the night before looking hot and getting bottle service. What we don't see is them wrapped around the toilet the next morning. Like the the reality is, is that you only have yourself, you only, you are your own R&D department. I, I only know how to do it. And, and this sounds overly cool, but stay with me here. I only know how to do it the Steve Jobs, Apple way. I don't know how to do it the Walmart way. So, and, and by the way, they're, they're both good and they're both valid. I mean, obviously they're two of the biggest companies in the world, mm-hmm. but Apple and Steve Jobs approach was always, it's not for our audience to tell us what they want. We have to create, we decide what they're going to want. And that's always when it's worked to my advantage. If I'm trying to people please if I'm trying to guess what's going to work, what's going to get a bunch of likes, what's going to really catch on, what's relatable, inevitably, I'm probably going to fall short. Maybe I can hack the system for a couple tries, but it's going to have diminishing returns. But when I say, this is funny to me, I think this is of quality, this is something I would want to watch, more times than not is when I find my sort of biggest wins. Conversely, Walmart's more like, We adapt to what the consumer wants. They tell us what they like and we give it to them. Obviously, their model ain't hurting. They're absolutely crushing it. But I don't know how to do it that second way. I only know how to do it the first.
1: Right. And I know you also use humor a lot. You're really funny. Um, (laughs) No surprise since you said Ace Ventura and Billy Madison were your idols, right? Were your people. I love those shows. So I really relate. Um, and you also partner with brands a lot, and I and I bet that helps a lot too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've I've been so lucky. I remember when I got my first—I talk about it in the book—I got my first brand deal with a company called Badoo, which was a dating app. Um, which everyone on Vine was doing these Badoo ads, and I'm like, "What about me? Mm-hmm. You know, I I like money." And so <laughs> I, I remember, you know, because it made sense, right? Like. Companies don't advertise on the Super Bowl for love of the game. They do it because they know it has the most eyeballs. And so when social media was in its sort of like early days, it only made sense that inevitably brands would come and try to leverage your audience, your eyes for their product. So I wound up doing this first thing for Badoo. They were like, we'll give you $5,000 and we'll, we'll wire it into a PayPal account. I was like, that seems insane. It makes no sense. And I've never been able to make money outside of show business before. I don't even have a PayPal account. And I remember I posted the video and within a minute, there it was. And I I, I couldn't believe it. And it was sort of a preview of what was to come with brands and social media. And I was lucky because I was uniquely qualified because here I had this social media following, but also I had sort of been taught through 10 years of traditional movies and TV, how to, you know, be accountable, how to show up for brands, how to be a good partner in which to work with. And I've been doing it pretty consistently over the last nine years. And I did a big campaign with Bank of America two years ago, sort of a almost a two year long thing. And for three or four years, I did a yearly thing with Buick. And, you know, I, I just feel like, look, inevitably, we know that this content's not free right someone's making money off of it and so if i can make 10 videos a month and one or two of them are sponsored and that can facilitate the other eight that are free i can sleep okay about that
1: right very true very true right and and that way you get a slice of the pie rather than just um, zuckerberg
0: yeah cuz you know zuckerberg's gonna zuckerberg's doing just fine and shit monetizing. Know, shout out right Shout yeah. out, Zuck. Good, good. I mean, listen. Good for all of them, but you know, inevitably, I think when you can figure that out, and that's what's exciting. I mean, you know, uh, hate them or love them. You know, the the new influencers, the the huge people on TikTok and mm-hmm. whatnot. I, you know, I think the merchandising. I think the fact that they're, you know, like you, you know, they invest in companies. I think that's sort of like the next step because inevitably, I'm still at the behest of some brand calling me and saying hey, here's X amount for this campaign. But these people are now like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to ask for anyone's permission. We're going to get in at sort of the ground level.
1: And Josh, now I want to switch topics a bit. And our final question for today is really about your upbringing. I mean, you grew up with financial hardships. You grew up with a single mom and no father figure. Mm. What was unique about your upbringing? Was there something about the way, some incident, maybe something about your mom that led you to this level of success?
0: God, it, it, it's a great question. And how do we do forensics on our own life, right? right? Because I always say a, a good life is an amalgamate of, of a million right things. You know, it's it's doing the right thing in a small way over and over again that amounts to a good life. You know, I love this phrase, your character is your fate. And somehow my life in, in trying to be a good good man, my life mirrored that of a good man. So I I, I don't know. You know, I it's it's so um, it's kind of corny, but when people say, like, what w- knowing what you know now, what would you have changed? And it's like, well, if I changed anything, I wouldn't be here. And if I'm you know, um, pleased with where I'm at, then you know, you can't really change anything. So, I certainly think there were some sweeping big factors. I didn't know my dad, which mm-hmm. I think sort of rocked my foundation from the moment that you know, uh, DNA you know, branches were sort of like chromosomes were intermingling uh, in my earliest inception, right? Or conception, like that That was sort of like set a tone even before I was actually living, breathing on the earth. And then, you know, some financial insecurity, the fact that my mom was a bit of an unrealized performer, that she was a natural comedian and singer, but maybe didn't have the support she gave me. There was so much at work, you know? I love this idea of epigenetics, which is like trans and, and it, it, it has sort of its, its place in, in trauma, that this idea of transgenerational trauma, that things that happen to your parents can affect you at your DNA, at your like base level. Now, of course, that can be negative, but there can also, I believe that epigenetics can have a place in the positive side of things too. So my genetic inheritance played a part in who I am today. And it was inescapable, but it didn't mean that once I was able to, you know, I was a teenager and I could take my life into my own hands. Then it became incumbent on me. Like I, this was the hand that I was dealt, but I could play this hand to the best of my ability. So I lost the weight. I didn't lay down during challenging moments. And, uh, I always wanted to be married and have a kid and I have that now. And that's the most important thing. So How yeah, all, kid? he's three. He's really spectacular. Amazing. The other day he, he came home from school. He said, dad, do you know, Pluto is a dwarf planet. I said, what are you trying to prove? Like you're smart enough. All right? Like right. <laughs> I, 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 I'm already threatened by you. You're three.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Josh. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, folks, that is Josh Peck. His book is out now on on Amazon. It's called Happy People Are Annoying. Go check it out. And you can also follow Josh on Instagram along with 13 million other people. And that's at S H U A Peck. Schwar Peck. S H U A P E C K.
0: Thank you. And you can check out my podcast, Mail Models. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. What a pleasure. Thank you, man.
1: Awesome. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. And for Bye, those guys. of you who enjoyed this episode, I will see you on the next episode of the Mind Valley Podcast. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.